This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series on Designing the Future of Defense and Security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I had an opportunity to conduct a series of interviews with government executives and thought leaders during this year's Spade Conference, hosted in Susterberg, the Netherlands. Spade brought together defense, intelligence, and security leaders from Europe and around the world in dialogue with experts from IBM and industry. This year's theme, Designing for the Future of Defense and Security. This is a two-part show from my conversations at Spade, exploring innovation in a military context, and then the advent and implication of 5G technology. First up is a discussion on innovation and robotic autonomous systems technology and developments in the Royal Dutch Army, with Major General Case Mathiesen, Deputy Commander of the Royal Netherlands Army, and Lieutenant Colonel Martijn Hedeke, commander of the Robotic Autonomous Systems Project within the Royal Netherlands Army. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. So would you tell us individually um, about your leadership role within the Royal Netherlands Army? Sir? I'm the uh, deputy commander of the Royal Netherlands Army, and in that role also responsible for the broader domain of innovation, concept development, and experimentation, uh, uh, adaptive army. Sir? Major Martijn Hedeke, I'm responsible for the Robotic Autonomous Systems Project as one of the concept development and experimentation efforts within the Army. And I think the tenor of the conversation, at least, it will be around that project. And and it's a great way to start. Uh, Would you describe, um, and we can have a back and forth, um, would you describe for our audience the mission of the Robotic Autonomous Systems Project within the Royal Netherlands Army? Well, first of all, in a broader context, we've been asking ourselves the question that was last year when we developed the Army's vision towards the future. Okay, what do we see in the world around us uh, and what is the relevance of the developments in the land domain that we operate in? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the th- things that we see is, you know, conflicts are getting more complex, uh, conflicts are getting more hybrid, um, and we see enormous technological developments. And what we want to be, of course, in the Army is that we are prepared for whatever mission in that complex environment. And we want to have the best equipment to operate in. And we need to connect uh, our soldiers with the techniques, with the technology that is available. So from that perspective, we have said we really need to take step forwards with concept development and experimentation. And part of that is that we decided to create a robotics and autonomous systems unit to actually start with experimenting with technology, 
robotics, artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, et cetera, et cetera. And not just the technology, but also, you know, try to incorporate it in the experimental phases in uh, the operations concepts and exercises. That's why the unit is attached also to one of our brigades. That's basically the thought behind it. Great. Did you have anything to add? Sir? That's exactly my mission, to make it practical. I would say the broader mission indeed is to, is to uh, develop units that are relevant and dominant on the battlefield of tomorrow. We know, therefore, that we have to start today. And by using this exponential technology of robotics combined with artificial intelligence together smart robotics to get this advantage to increase our combat power to increase our situational awareness to lower the costs costs of risk costs of time necessary to conduct a task or the costs of people involved to deliver a certain effect and my job is to make it practical indeed within the context of this operational unit and also by new organizing for innovation not just, uh, let's say, a waterfall approach of projects, but opening up to startups, opening up to industry, co-development, embedding the industry within our units, going on exercises and experiments together, engaging more in a network, more in an ecosystem, also with knowledge institutions, so universities for applied technology, to our research partner, fundamental research on, on this topic, combining it all together into winning concepts. So for our audience, could you describe what we mean by military robotics and autonomous systems? Yeah. Uh, robotics are machines, and they conduct tasks in an environment. So it's a human that designs the mission. It's the human that sets the goal for the machine to achieve. That, that's basically the robotics definition. In the military context, think of tasks like surveillance, tasks that are dull, dirty, or dangerous. Uh, locating mines or impro uh, improvised explosives is a dangerous task. That would be done by a machine. With drones creating situational awareness more and better and on more places than a human can. Logistical supplies is another area of interest where robotic systems or unmanned systems have great value. You can offload your, uh, your luggage, your backpack, your ammunition, uh, your supplies and stack them on these unmanned driving vehicles, sort of create extra supplies instead of the necessity for combat power mm -hmm. to bring supplies or large vehicle trucks. Great. So you kind of alluded to it earlier, but I'd like uh, for our audience to understand uh, maybe in more detail the strategy around leveraging robotics and autonomous systems and what your key priorities are in this space over the next year or two. Well, basically, the first essential question is, uh, because we're experimenting with the unit, we're trying lots of things. What we're looking for is technology, a robotic type of technology that is applicable in a broader sense within the Army. That increases the effectiveness of our units, of our Army, that you know provides additional protection for our personnel, that may save manpower, which all makes life, military life easier. A military life itself is not easy, it is difficult, but you know what I mean. It's about effectiveness, more protection, and saving manpower. But the effectiveness is the most important one. So what are some of the recent developments, and what are some of the challenges at integrating the, uh, the ARS into um, current manned missions? Uh, 
Martijn is in het uh, daily. So. There are lots of challenges. First, getting there. Uh, how do you frame the project? It, it, is this a technology delivery project? No, it's not. It's disruptive innovation. That requires different thinking. But different thinking and doing doesn't really align well with the standing organization. So there are some challenges there. Imagine how to specify your requirements. I can't really because I'm very at the forefront of this technology. It's not thinking and delivering of end capability, but of a starting capability. Fundamental different thinking. Failure is different than how we used to work uh, because it's inherent to experimentation. Because if we already know, it's easy to nominate these winning concepts. Uh, but it, there's so many unknowns on how to best use it, how to best exploit AI. There's no infrastructure yet in place to have big data, to do data science properly. So there's a lot needed to be built. There are lots of challenges, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of promise uh, with it, as I understand it. Like, for instance, if if and when this technology is implemented and, and matures more particularly, how can it enhance your situational awareness and, you know, um, strategic superiority in the field, if you will? First, it should help us. And if you look at, you know, the last about 25 years, you know, since the end of the Cold War, we've been lots of stability type of operations, whether it's in Iraq or in Afghanistan or whatsoever. We kind of gotten used to uh, opponents that are uh, not that technologically advanced as we are. Since 2014, uh, you know, uh, with the annexation of Crimea, we uh, got a kind of wake up call that Russia is still there and may still be an opponent if you look at its power politics. So it came more in our thinking that we need to be prepared to operate or fight against a near-peer competitor that is technologically on the same level as we are. So there's a more and more a need mm-hmm. that we really need to speed up and see also based upon the technological de- the developments that are you know, going on in the world uh, at a high speed, by the way, to look for technological solutions that will help us and that will help us to if possible, have the technological superiority, which may be difficult because there are other actors that are working on it like we are. I want to turn to this idea of the future advancements or gains. And it might be a little early, but why not think ahead around the combination of man and unmanned teams? What kind of impact are we seeing? What kind of advancement and what kind of impact is that to your efforts? First, it requires a, a, a different mindset because we're coming from a kind of you know classical way of thinking that we need men and we need equipment and then that together train them and uh, achieve a certain effect, a military effect that we you know whether it's seizing a bridge or seizing a village or whatever or helping the population in stability type of operation. We now need to think you know more in the sense of okay if we want to achieve a certain military effect in whatever operation. What smart combination can we make of technology and manpower, soldiers, to achieve that effect? And hopefully with technology, we can have, you know, better effects or uh, more effects with the same capability, which is a mix of personnel and technology. And maybe that we get a different balance in the organization. You know, if you now, if we nowadays have an organization, an infantry battalion organization, which is about... 600 soldiers with uh, weapon systems, with uh, communication systems uh, and, and other systems. 
what if we are able with technological means uh, in the future to achieve the same effects as the current battalion, but then with a battalion that consists of 300 soldiers and lots more high-tech equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a little bit what we're in. And, and with that, you know, you're getting right to the next point. When you think of the high-tech equipment, um, I'm getting sort of in the weeds a little bit, as we say. What is kind of being done to address connectivity issues in difficult or unknown environments? Well, there's a, there's a lot going on in the planning phase and the upcoming years, and that may be, you know, the upcoming five to ten years, we are really uh, are going to invest in that because, because the connectivity is essential. Okay. You know, uh, and if you look, if you look at what technological is available already and what is possible uh, in that field, you know, there's a lot possible to use technology to have a better common situational awareness, to see what is going on, to see where everybody is, and to you know connect the sensor mm-hmm. and the shooter, so to say, yeah. the one who brings the effect much faster in a much shorter time loop. Um, and, and that is also what we want to achieve. Please. Well, to amend on that, we, we operate better when connected. We operate synchronized, organized, coordinated. Um, that, that's how we operate, especially with smaller sized units. Same goes for the machines. They are more efficient, more effective when they are able to communicate with each other and from the robots to the humans and vice versa. But it's also a denied capability. Uh, Think of electronic warfare, jamming, spoofing, uh, denial of GPS as a function. So that sets high standards for the technological development. And the other side is more autonomy, more independent task execution, independent of this uh, loss of connection. Um, That's a, a strive to be able to survive and operate successfully in these types of operations against a peer opponent. How is the Royal Netherlands Army innovating? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. What is the mission of the Center for Democracy and Technology? How is it advancing federal privacy law to protect our digital rights? What is the Center for Democracy and Technology doing in the area of cybersecurity? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Nuala O'Connor, President and CEO at the Center for Democracy and Technology. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour the Spade interview series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Major General Case Mathieson, Deputy Commander of the Royal Netherlands Army, and Lieutenant Colonel Martijn Hedeke, Commander of the Robotic Autonomous Systems Project within the Dutch Army. So uh, when you think about the advances in technology 
innovation. You did a wonderful job of explaining the robotics angle. Where does the Internet of Things or different other technologies like uh, you know, blockchain, in fact, too, um, does any of these have an effect that makes it easier for you to achieve your, your innovation mission? There are tools. They can be made of use. We just have to figure out how to best use them. They exist in the world. They provide value in our businesses. Uh, aside from the robotics, an example of how we use blockchain is to exchange information with non-military units or assets like NGOs, Red Cross, for example. They can share their position, so we are aware of their positions and we can avoid bombing them or, or avoid negative effects. But they need to be trusted uh, so that not, not anybody can claim they're an NGO or, or uh, claim the protection given by the system. It's called Whitehead. It's developed from an innovation effort and it utilizes blockchain as, as technology. Are there any other examples you'd like to share of the work that you have in place, that, that uh, innovations that you'd like to tell us about that you're pursuing oh. as part of your portfolio or part of your effort? Uh, currently, the main portfolio is, is robotic autonomous systems. That has my full effort. That has your full effort. Um, what, what is the vision? What's the future in that area? Have you, have you, what, are your, what are your immediate plans, your short-term plans um, in terms of uh, projects or, or de- developments? Or how, is it go- how are you affecting change at the field level? Yeah. Well, only two weeks ago, we had the very first exercise. So the very first integration of actual systems together with the industry. So in it is actual that new? Exercise. I, I see. Okay. So it's, it's also very new, getting practically started. Um, we try to work as, as fast as possible. Uh, and I, th- I consider my main job nominating best practices so that to our leadership and to our organization so that they can decide when and which to upscale. Maybe, maybe add a little bit to, to other innovations because uh, Major Hedrick is, in a, is indeed working you know, with robotics and autonomous systems uh, within his uh, project. Uh, but within our army, we are also experimenting with uh, counter uh, UAS, uh, uh, Unmanned Aerial Systems. We are experimenti- uh, experimenting with uh, UAS systems itself. We are experimenting in the field of command and control, you know, how to improve situational awareness, how to improve connectivity. Uh, so there's a lot more going on uh, in a broader sense uh, in our concept development and experimentation program, which is in fact a program, and we have a small coordination element. That's what we created. And that all element coordinates all the activities that we do within the Army and that are done by uh, the RAS uh, unit, but also by some other units, you know, in a broader sense. So there's quite a lot yeah, going cool. on. Can I pick up on that, sir? Since I have you here, uh, for our audience, I'd love to know more about the, uh, your, your capacity, the Army, for the Netherlands Army. Uh, well, could you tell us a little bit more about the size, okay, scope? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We, the Netherlands is a relatively small country, as you all uh, know. That, so, uh, for instance, compared to the United States Army, we just have a small army. We have about uh, 18,000 men and women personnel within uh, the Army. Uh, we have basically uh, three uh, brigades, uh, an air assault brigade, uh, a medium armored brigade, and a heavy armored uh, brigade. Um, we have a special forces regiment, and we have a uh, ground-based air defense capability, and we have enabling capabilities, combat support, service support type of uh, capabilities within the Army. Um, two of our brigades are integrated in a, a German division because we have a real close cooperation with uh, Germany. 
Um, and the last one I want to mention is that we have a German Netherlands core headquarter, a land component command type of uh, command and control element. German, first German Netherlands Corps. So that's basically roughly the organization of our army. So if I could, aside from uh, complementary to the innovation discussion, what are some of the other challenges that you are facing in your leadership role? Since uh, more than 25 years of budget cuts, we've had a, a significant increase of our budget last year because of the, you know, the changes going on in the world, et cetera, et cetera, like many more uh, of the, the NATO countries. So we can, we can grow again um, and um, increasing the budget and implementing plans that come along with it is very challenging because it's not only just, you know, experimenting and innovating. That is one big part of it, but it's also not just buying new material and, you know, increasing and creating new organizations, but we also need to become more adaptive as an army. So it's a, I always say it's a kind of multi-dimensional way that we are in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because becoming more adaptive needs, to, needs that you have to change your procedures, that you have to change your mindset, that you need to be able you know, to go more quick through decision-making processes, especially related to you know, procurement of equi- new equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to have smart processes to go through it quickly and we need to make sure that our procurement processes can speed up too. Because if you innovate and experiment and you find out that something is applicable in the, in the broader army or maybe even throughout the armed forces, you need to be able to speed up and say, hey, if this is applicable, we will implement it in the upcoming months or years and not you know, need a lot of time for additional decision-making, allocating money and so on and so on. So that change towards towards becoming an adaptive and flexible organization is a huge, and that's one of the challenges. That's one of the major challenges, uh, combination with other things, but. Are there any particular initiatives that you're taking to address that challenge? Oh yeah, there are lots of, uh, you know, we we are experimenting with technology, but we're also experimenting with procedures and and, uh, we call it social innovation. Uh, We are working on the leadership, how to have the mindset change and the culture and so on and so on. So there's quite a lot going on uh, in that sense. And and may I ask, uh, uh, you mentioned uh, acquisition or procurement. Um, Forgive me, but in in the the U.S., it's when you bring defense and procurement together, it's very it can be very cumbersome and difficult to get um, capitalized. Uh, How are you? Is it easier in your context, or is it just as difficult? I'm I'm afraid it's just as difficult as in the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. I think, I think, by the way, a lot of countries that we talk to have that same challenge. Well, that's actually my next question yeah. is, uh, obviously, yeah, how, how do you partner with other, uh, uh, with other countries or even industry to, to better uh, your mission uh, accomplishments? Now, uh, we, we are, you know, a, a NATO member like 20 other, uh, 20, 28 other countries, and including uh, the U.S., uh, but uh, within the NATO countries, we have a very close cooperation with Germany. I just said we have two of our brigades are integrated into a German division, which is a very close uh, cooperation. And there are some other countries like Belgium and France and the UK, Luxembourg, that there's a more close uh, cooperation with and that we have programs uh, with. Uh, and if you look at the cooperation with uh, Germany, we're also, you know, in, in, in the field of uh, the CIS, uh, uh, Command and Control and Information Systems, uh, working on a program binationally 
you know, to innovate and renew our command and control and information systems in the upcoming years, especially in the in the, in the, in the in the in the in the mobile domain. Oh, yeah. So replacing our radios and our communication systems in vehicles and so on and so on. That's a binational program. Uh, that we're working, which is also an example, you know, that international cooperation, also in these fields of innovation and renewal, is very valuable. And same for RAS. We have a close cooperation with the U.S. Army, uh, Fort Benning, the Maneuver Center of Excellence. We visit the exercises. Uh, we're going to participate in Army Expeditionary Warfighting Experiment that gives access to their plans, their, their efforts. Uh, they come over to us, uh, beginning of July. Uh, we share information with our partners like Germany, Belgium, Norwegian, uh, Swedish, etc. There's, there's an easy sharing of information, of our insights. And we are stepping up our cooperation with Estonia. Um, Estonia, also a relatively small armed forces. Very uh, sincere security concern as they are bordering next to Russia. Uh, they're a manufacturer of the Milram vehicle, which we use. And that company is very uh, professional, but also very adaptive, very flexible. Uh, they've supported us not just with the delivery of the vehicles, but also developing the concepts, uh, advising into the field. We've taken them on an exercise with us into the barracks. Uh, so a very close integration of industry, international part uh, parties uh, and operational units to, to, uh, together to develop this concept. Yeah, can I ask about that? Lessons learned from these engagements. Is there any that you'd like to share with us? Well, the first insights from uh, the user perspective are there, there are huge opportunities in reconnaissance and surveillance uh, to create situation awareness, early warning. That's, that's a very good domain to start investing. Second one is uh, logistics uh, at the tactical edge. Uh, providing supplies to the platoons in a uncertain, unsecure environment. That's a very good investment area for robotics. A bit further away is, is generating firepower under human control. Uh, same goes for breaching of obstacles. It's a very risky job, better to be done by a robot. It's, it's on our radar, on our investment uh, plan. Uh, tactical air defense, if defense against drones, uh, providing a very big risk when connected to a fire support system. Um, so in, and on robotic platforms, you have an opportunity to develop your own shield, if, if you want. The technology is there. We just have to integrate it into our way of operating. One of the things I'd, I'd like to mention in the field of international cooperation is that uh, interoperability, mm -hmm. you know, be able to work with each other which we've done in Afghanistan, by the way, with all NATO partners and, and, and many more uh, nations, is, is important. And we tend to look at the technical part of interoperability. You know, are our systems able to you know, communicate to each other? But there's more to the interoperability piece. There's a cultural element in it, and there's a procedural element, and we tend to forget those. Uh, and the technological part is important, but don't underestimate the cultural part. Do we understand each other? Do we have a common doctrine? Are we understanding each other with our procedures or, or the differences? And so on and so on. If you don't have that, the tools don't matter. Exactly, exactly. You, can, you, you know, you can build technological solutions, but if they're based on different procedures or different doctrine or a different cultural vision or, you know, you may build the wrong 
technology. Yeah, it won't help. No, <laughs> it won't help. It won't help. By the way, that's also the interesting piece of is it uh, the people piece? The, the, the people and process piece yeah. is always uh, it's trying no matter where you are. Oh, I gather. Okay. <laughs> so um, you know, if I may ask the, a couple of questions about the future, um, and if I could, I, I'd like to get a, a holistic approach or, uh, on the future of innovation in the military context. But I also would like to ask you about the future in robotics and autonomous systems. So may I go with you? First of all, I think that uh, innovation is uh, a key success factor towards the future. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, if you look at what's going on in the world um, and, and, and the implications for that for the military domain and the land domain, we as an army, you know, developments are growing very fast. The speed of interaction in the world has increased significantly over the years. The world is more connected. I, I sometimes use an example, you know, that uh, a, a, a tweet of President Trump can have strategic effects within one or two seconds on the other side of the world. So the world is more connected, so there's more speed of interaction. There's an, a, an enormous speed in technological development. And in that broader perspective, it is, it is really a need that as an organization you need to be able to adapt, you need to be adaptive, and it, you need to innovate continuously. Look for the better solutions for the future. Uh, so it, it's a, uh, and we, we, we started with the concept development and experimentation unit, and we will have that for many years, because that's the accelerator of innovation within the Army. And if I could, just as a follow-up, what kind of resistance do you meet when you're trying to do sort of the innovation and the traditional hierarchy. And is it because, I mean, you really need somebody at your level to direct this. No, exactly. And, and, and you say direct. I don't see, I don't see it as direct. I, I need, I, at my level, sure. I, my, I need to facilitate, facilitate it. it. Great distinction. There's a lot of creativity and sense of urgency and, you know, ambition within the organization. And as leadership, you need to facilitate it. And you need to you know, say what the borders left and right are, try to make them as broad as possible to provide the space for your subordinate units and your personnel you know, to, to, to take the responsibility and come up with the good solutions. And guess what? You will be surprised of, of, of the good uh, uh, solutions that are provided. Uh, that's the challenge for us as a leadership. And uh, the challenge also is to try to you know, uh, change our procedures that are, you know, coming from many years of budget cuts and so on and so on to get the procedures more adaptive too. Mm -hmm. And catch up. And catch will. up. <laughs> uh, and that's also part of that facilitating, you know, the power within the organization. I don't really encounter much resistance as I'm, I'm opposed to innovation. We shouldn't do this. We should stay the same way we are. It's, it's not, um, not present in the organization. What is present is uh, we should invest in repairing what we have first. Uh, as, as more important than innovating. So there's a tension. Uh, should we invest in uh, the solutions we know that have been effective for the last uh, decades? Or should we invest in this technology that has potential but still has uh, time needed to be fully developed and fully proven? There's a tension. There's a tension. So you both participated in a panel here at Spade 2019 on this subject. And I would like to, to ask you to share some of the key insights you have gathered from the panel. And if, if you will, uh, how will they help or have they, has, there, has there been a change in your thinking? Has it been a compliment to what you've been thinking from that panel? 
I would say it's more complementary. I, I, I must say we discussed the issues that we kind of, okay, I think most of them we discussed also already in, in this interview that we had, you know, about the cooperation and the cooperation with the, the, the outside armed forces field, you know, uh, civil and commercial enterprises, uh, knowledge institutions, universities, and so on and so on. Um, because that's, a, that's an important one too. We need to tie our hands more together, uh, also with the outside field, mm -hmm. uh, so to say. It's more of a journey uh, together. Yeah. Uh, we know AI exists, it has been uh, invented, developed. Mm -hmm. It's making big progress in the outside world from our perspective. So there's a challenge for us to uh, harness it, to incorporate it into our operations and have the benefits of it. Then there's this organization question, how to organize to be able to um, exploit these advantages. Co-development, innovation, uh, servant leadership, those are the ingredients necessary <coughs> to be able to tap into this exponential technology. Um, it has been done before in the outside world, in the businesses, typically faster than, than we do. We have to translate it into our processes, our culture, our way of organizing, our way of operating. That, that was for me the main topic of, of the panel. That's great. Um, I have one last question, and it's around uh, the show is about leadership. And I, uh, most of the folks I have on, are, as I mentioned, are senior government leaders, both military and uh, what we call civilian, federal civilian. Um, can I ask you both, and you, sir, particularly, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? And could you share with us some of your the leadership principles that you uh, follow? I, I, what, what I always find important in my uh, role as an officer throughout my career is that you should, you know, uh, I, I, I use the principles of mission command, okay. which is about, you know, uh, defining what you want to get done or achieved yeah, and leave the how to your team, to your personnel, so they can use their creativity, their responsibility, and they come up with the good initiatives and the good solutions. And like I said, you'll be surprised at what they come up with. That's what I really believe in. Very strong element to facilitate innovation, and it's experienced that way. It's, it's very, very true, both in operations, and we excel in mission command and operations. It's, it's how we want to operate. It's how we train and educate and select our, our leaders right from the academy. The difficulty is to transfer that mindset, that mission command, into our daily business and indeed open up, give space to innovators to let innovation happen while not being directed or controlled or putting emphasis on specifying the requirements or your budget plans one year ahead. That's the change necessary through the leadership. Uh, and there's one key element involved in that mission command because implicitly that also means that you have to give trust to your people. That's a starting point. Use a mission command also means that you have to give the trust to your people. And most of the time, you know, they will prove that they were worth it. That's success. Yeah. Well, thank you both, gentlemen, for being here. I really appreciate your time and your service to your country. Thank you very much. This has been a conversation with Major General Casebeth Eisen, Deputy Commander of the Royal Netherlands Army, and Lieutenant Colonel Martijn Heidecke. Commander of the Robotics Autonomous Systems Project, part of the SPADE interview series from Sisterberg, the Netherlands. Next up, I explore the advent and implication of 5G technology with Terry Halverson, former Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Defense and current Senior Executive at Samsung.
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Terry Halverson, former Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Defense and current Senior Executive at Samsung. Uh, what are the benefits associated with uh, the move to 5G? So I'm, I t- I'll tell you what I think the biggest one is going to sure. be, because I think it's interesting. We have been talking about the Internet of Things probably for five years. And if I sit here and ask you, so how much Internet of Things have you seen? You'd look around and say, well, not too much. <laughs> there were some big problems with that. One was to have the Internet of Things really work, you have to have a large number of sensors connected on a network. 4G systems literally couldn't handle the density of sensors. 5G were able to do that. But the other thing you needed was you had to have the data get to the intelligence point where you were going to operate on it quickly and, and, and do it in a, without a time lag. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing 5G is going to do. And it's going to enable, I think, some pretty spectacular things. I mean, one of the things that we know, that if you can control soil hydration and soil temperature— you can generally increase crop production. And as we look around at the uh, number of the world population and things are growing, we know that we're going to need to be able to grow more food Mm -hmm. or produce more food. If you had the right sensors in the ground, you could actually do that. And and you must do it in real near time because it's a thing that happens in real time. It can rain, not rain. That's some of the things that will be possible. Obviously, Enhanced driving. And I'm going to say enhanced driving before we get to autonomous driving. But if you imagine today, if you have a newer car today, you know, you have the lane sensors and and some of the warning. What if you had a car that really was censored to give you 360 degree warning, could store data that could kind of predict behavior that was going to happen in front of you, uh, that could keep that car in align, react, give you indications of accidents. All that's going to happen, I think, very soon. 
We know that just keeping traffic flow moving during an accident would reduce, you know, lots of traffic. I mean, I, I have spent time in D.C. I am anxiously awaiting so that I will be able to get to the office and from the office quicker. But there'll be those kind of benefits. One, I think the other benefits that, that will maybe come first in the transportation uh, industry. Today, planes, trains, buses, cars that are commercial they work on a prescriptive maintenance schedule. So, you know, airlines, they have to take planes out of service based on maybe it's miles or cycles of the engine. With 5G and the sensors, you're gonna get real-time data. You're gonna be able to actually know when is the time to take that plane, train, bus, auto off the line. You're gonna know and be able to predict failure in a much, much more accurate way to be able to say, yes, I can run this X longer with more certainty than we can get out of the prescriptive maintenance today. And of course, that means less cost, less taking the asset out of production. I think one of the the real dreams here is going to be very interesting. Lots of cars on the road. But most cars at any given time are not on the road. I mean, I, I, I'll ask you if you have a car. Mm-hmm. How much time do you spend in your car? Yeah, really. Uh, you don't, not as much as you think. No, you and, and what happens, let's say even you yeah. drive two hours a day to work. Mm-hmm. Well, then you're at work eight, you drive it home, and then it sits. I mean, it's from a standpoint of pure efficiency and effectiveness, not a great investment. We all love them. I have them. Yeah. But not a great investment for an RI. I think you could get to the point where... As we evolve 5G, you might see cars as a service. Interesting. Where okay. you could, yeah. you know, just, just call, call up, up your car, yep. you get it. means we don't need as many cars on the road. Um, cars, or we don't need to be stacking them up places and parking. But I think it frees up a lot of interesting possibilities. I think on the other really pro side, you're going to see interesting changes in, in medical treatment. Uh, we'll have sensors that will let people be much more treated at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and doctors will know. Doctors are going to be able to intervene off those sensors. Um, you know, we are, as a whole, the, the world is an aging population. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, along with aging, we see an increase in, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, those things. You're going to be able to really give quality of life and extend, I think, for those patients using the the sensors that will be available and the real-time monitoring and assistance you'll deliver over 5G. Wow. You know, so what are some of the key, and you may have alluded to it, um, but what are some of the key challenges and or barriers, if any, uh, to, to this technology? Well, I think one of the barriers is, is just going to be it's, it is going to be really new, and it's going to change, have to change the way we think. Um, I think one of the things that will happen, you're going to have to change your network architecture. Mm-hmm. Today, probably rightly so, we're, we're working heavily on clouds with a concentrated center point for your architecture. And that center point is generally not at the edge. 5G, coupled with the improvements in storage. I mean, we now have in, in smartphones, you have the ability to have a terabyte of storage. You have other devices where you could get to 21 terabits of storage in a very, very small footprint. That's going to allow us to put much more data in the edge. And if you connect these devices along with the data, in some ways, what is going to happen with 5G, we're going to commercialize supercompute, and we're going to commercialize it right at the point you want it. And, and you need it. That's going to make a huge change, but that will change 
the way we have to think about networks and how we architect them. And that type of change, I don't think, happens overnight. I mean, you're going to have the technology ready, but will people be ready? Will the designers be able to think about that? I think that's going to be one of the challenges. We've talked about all of this data connected. It is certainly going to have if it's not done right, a higher attack service is going to have more volume for threats. Um, now, the, the benefit of that is if it's architected right, 5G, because of the speed, because of the latency, is going to give you the ability to do a better job securing the network and do a better job of knowing when there is any type of intrusion on your network. But again, that will take a change in the way we architect and a change from what we currently do on security. You know, Today, we tend to focus on endpoints and we treat the end device and the networks differently. So we have a, a, a program that defines the network security, and you do other things for the endpoint. I think, again, with 5G, you're going to have a really more complete security system, but that's going to take a change uh, from the way we think about designing today. The other thing I think that 5G is going to be the, the baseline, and I think it's already happening I think Moore's Law is probably too slow now. <laughs> uh, Never thought and, I'd hear that. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I didn't either, yeah. but I really think now we're going to enter the next 30, 40 years where the pace of technology is going to be even faster than we've seen in the last 40. That, just that pace, I think, has put pressure on lots of parts of society. That pressure is going to get even faster. Mm -hmm. um, you take organizations, you know, like the defense or big government, big companies, mm -hmm. They're already wrestling, in many cases, the ability to quickly adapt uh, to this new technology. That pressure is just going to increase and increase. It'll be interesting to see how we can respond uh, to that. I think there will be the big challenge. Most of them are going to be, and I think that you've, you've, you've heard people talk about it, and I think it's correct. It's going to be really how do you change people's mindsets faster to be able to be more agile and adaptive. It's not something in general that particularly big organizations have been exceptional at. Mm -hmm. uh, Terry, your background, you, I mean, you, you came out of the DOD. You're the CIO, I believe, at the DOD. Um, so what's the military application around, you know, security application around 5G? How could it be applied in the military context? So I think in, in, in the military context, I think what we've seen in military and is that in the past, we've had a very clear emphasis on weapons platforms and weapons superiority. I think along with the rest of the world, it's now about data and intelligence superiority. And what I mean by intelligence is decision quality information that you pull from data. Um, in DOD, I don't think data, getting data has ever been the big problem. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been overwhelming our systems with data, but getting intelligent decision quality data out of those systems in a timeline that supports commanders and decisions has been a challenge. This, the 5G is going to help really reduce that challenge. And it's going to give, I think, a, I'll call it a commanding control and communications plane that we didn't have before. The other thing it will do is allow us to better utilize, I think, legacy systems. So I could envision where you have a 5G central network but it doesn't do all of your communications. It will do things like today, we have some very reliable HF systems, and even though they may be older, they're very reliable, but they're, they're slower uh, in speed, and they generally can't handle vast amounts of data. 
well, if I'm processing the data now on the edge, I don't need to send back um, an answer. One of the things we talk about today is in the current state, we send all of the data back so it can be computed in some central point. What we're going to start sending back now is the answers. We're going to do that central compute, and we'll send the answers back, which will then be further analyzed at a, at a central point. But what we will be sending back will be less. So that lets us use much more systems mm -hmm. that we have today. I also think the way we will configure the security of 5G, some of the legacy systems that may be out there that, that might be vulnerable to today's threats, when 5G is applied to them and you have the kind of sensors you can put on 5G to detect um, network penetration and can quickly get answers out, you're going to be able to re re uh, reuse or revitalize some of these legacy systems. What I think that's going to do is give defense and other big government agencies a better timeline to modernize. I mean, one of the things that I think we have to accept, there's not enough money for, I don't care, even the U.S., big budget. I mean, I had a big budget as the ODCIO. Not enough money, though, to modernize every system I had at one time. I think this is going to let us actually develop a more planned and uh, thought-out system to say these are where we'll prioritize modernizations and still be able to use some of the systems um, safely and improve their effectiveness by using the 5A G system as kind of a back plane or a control plane. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you probably alluded to, but I was wondering, are there any examples of successful 5G implementation uh, and why were they successful? Well, I think in the, in the consumer world, you've seen it. I mean, the carriers in the U.S. have started to use 5G as a way to deliver, particularly I'll say the last half mile or, or the last even thousand meters of service without having to come in and run fiber. Mm -hmm. um, running fiber is expensive, it's time consuming, so I think that's one successful piece. I think you're going to see, like Korea is, South Korea is ahead of everybody. It is the most advanced place for 5G. They're already fielding uh, smartphones with 5G that, you know, we talk about it and it seems like a trivial thing. I'll be able to mo download a movie faster. But if you extend that, I could download learning, training faster. Uh, I think you're going to be able to download medical data faster. That really could mean the difference between life and death to a, to a patient at a remote site where before it maybe took too long so they couldn't get the benefit of, say, that best doctor in the area or even the best doctor in the world. Those type of things, we're already starting to see some uh, breakthroughs. Um, certainly the ability to connect 5G drones that can now send vast amounts of data real time, that has already started. Uh, so I think it's all started in pockets, mm -hmm. and, and I think the next three to five, and, and I will say this, every time I have said something about networks and their speed, to include early thoughts that I put out about 5G, I have always been too slow. <laughs> so now I'm trying to think about how I make the predictions faster. Personally, I think the next two to three years we'll see an explosion in 5G in a bit of a different way than we saw with 4G. I do think 5G is going to be much more dominated by government and big business because I think 5G initially 
has the best return on investment for big governments and uh, business. Mm-hmm. So do, do 5G networks, um, do they provide better resilience? Um, Again, I think you'd get some debate on this. I think so for a couple of reasons. Um, you don't need as big a single footprint. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting, and you can read in the paper, people go to deploy 4G networks, and the, a lot of times people get complaints about, we got to put all the towers in. Um, and there's, there, there is at least a perceived uh, disruption to the environment. The 5G systems are of lower footprint. It don't need big towers. The actual 5G antenna arrays can go on your light poles, power poles. The, the smaller units can actually you know, be stuck on a window. Um, I think pretty soon you're going to see 5G you know, units really actually truly glued to the outside of airplanes so we get 5G in the sky. Um, and anybody who flies a lot and deals with, and when I say this, it's not a criticism of the airlines or anybody else. They're actually, given the systems and the technology, doing a pretty good job. But 5G is going to improve that. You're actually going to be able to be on a plane at some point, and that may be three to five years away, and you're going to have seamless connectivity across the, the oceans and across land. The other advantage of 5G is it's truly a mesh network so that the endpoints also will receive point. So when we talk about 5G, we say it's near line of sight because you get some interesting uh, bounce patterns between the antennas. So you can keep a 5G system up. Now, you may not get the full speed, but one of the things that I think we're going to have to consider, and this is particularly true, I think, in government and big business Let's say that, you know, by January, I'm up where if I'm in full capability, I'm giving two and a half gig per second and I lose some nodes and, you know, now I'm down to one gig per second. I don't think that's going to cause a dramatic uh, drop for a lot of processes. So I think in that way, it's going to be more resilient. And it's certainly in a military standpoint, you've got to take out a lot more pieces of the network to put it completely off the air. Do you, do you see, if you don't mind me asking another question, do you see um, with the 5G, uh, uh, you know, um, advances, um, do you see a, a policy implication that the Hill would be concerned about? I do. And I think I, I'll tell you what I am very heartened by. I think the Hill in general and the Senate right now specifically. Um, and, and when I say the Senate, I truly mean the Senate. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of bipartisan Um, agreement on having the discussions about this new technology, more so than I saw when we were starting to field other uh, breakthroughs over the last 20 years. I think they really, I think it comes from a couple things. Well, you know what I thought, probably the biggest thing is you've got more people in the Senate who grew up with with, with these technology changes, and I think they're thinking hard about what does this mean in terms of, you know, my voters, my states. And there's going to be huge implications. The other topic that's somewhat related to this, we talked a little bit about the auto industry here today, the transportation industry. What about the insurance industry in both medical and cars? If, if you had 5G properly deployed along highways today, you would dramatically reduce the accident rates. Well, that's going to throw the actuary tables that for an accident right out the window. How does that play? Certainly, we're going to see 5G tied to much more use of robotics. 
that's going to change the labor market in ways that we haven't thought about. And I think a lot of people are going to think initially, oh, my God, that's going to take all the jobs away. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm, I'm an optimist. I think we're going to see different jobs created, but that means we're going to have to think hard about what it really means to be, and I hate to say, I hate retrained or reeducated, but repositioned mm-hmm. people. Um, you know, we're already on a trend, and, and I forget the right numbers about how often people change jobs. That could happen more often. But with the 5G networks and the ability to deliver not just, you know, information or teach, but you're going to be able to give people simulations of what their next experience are going to be like. I just think it could be really powerful. And we are suffering in many places from a lack of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and rightly so. I think there are some jobs people don't want to do. I mean, there are certainly jobs I don't want to do. And it'll be as we be able to, with 5G and the robotics and the control and safety they offer, you're going to be able to put, I think, a lot of tasks that today we still have to use, to use humans that we just will not have to. Mm-hmm. But that all needs to be thought about and, and maybe planned out a little better than we've done in the past. It'll be fun. So, uh, Terry, uh, you are here at Spade uh, 2019. I believe you you, uh, uh, led a panel on this very topic. Are there any insights from that panel that you'd like to share? Well, I think some of the insights were really good from the panel. Um, You know, Colonel uh, Schauble from the uh, German military, I think, really helped us focus. You know, we tend to think about technology particularly in defense around big platforms around you know all of the uh, the new weapon systems you know the pictures here were about the f-35 and other planes and i think uh, one of the takeaways he brought it very much down what's it going to do for the ground soldier Mm -hmm. and i do think we need to think about a what it's going to do for them and what it could do to them uh, in a sense and that's going to be true in general Um, the other i think takeaway uh, uh Christoph um, Edmonds um, made a good point that 5G is going to permeate many more aspects of everyone's life when it's really mature than any of the previous systems. And I think that's also true. And again, that's something we just need to think. What are going to be the impacts of that? Um, I think John uh, Zangardi made a very good point in it. What's going to drive 5G? So, you know, a lot of prediction, where will the earliest 5G go? And this is one place where I think 5G will be like, it's going to follow the money. Um, <laughs> in those areas where I can see an immediate ROI are going to go with 5G first. And that, again, is probably going to be big business and government. Well, thank you, Terry, for joining me today. It's great thank to have you. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade interview series from Sisterburg, the Netherlands. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation exploring the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the mission of the Center for Democracy and Technology? How is it advancing federal privacy law to protect our digital rights? What is the Center for Democracy and Technology doing in the area of cybersecurity? 
Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Nuala O'Connor, president and CEO at the Center for Democracy and Technology. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. 